Sedant, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here to talk about ClearBot. I came across ClearBot after doing some research into some of the up and coming startups in the Hong Kong area. ClearBot kept on coming up on my radar. And so I wanted to reach out to you directly. So first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for, for having me over next. Such a pleasure to be here and share a little more about what we do. I can't wait to get into all the story of ClearBot, but I always like to first start with the story of the founder themselves, their history, and what they did before they started on their current journey with their current startup. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, I actually, I grew up in India, in Bangalore, um, and I... My parents uh, ran a manufacturing company, so I spent a lot of time around machines. And so that's how I started to get into robotics. Um, so when I was in India, I actually ended up making a robot that broke a national record. So at the time, it was the smallest walking robot around in India. And uh, I think that kind of reinforced that to me that this was the space I wanted to be in. Right. Um, and then I came over to Hong Kong to study at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, and there I started a project kind of one of my previous work, I'd started a project to uh, break a Guinness World Record, right? So the idea was, so we found this record category for fastest robotic fish that we felt we could attempt and, and work out. So I started building this robotic fish at HQ, and uh, as a result of that, two things happened. First is I grew exposure into the marine sort of environment, right? Which, of course, today is, is all of my work now. Uh, but also, I, I got a lot of opportunities to travel around and do projects on behalf of the university. So we would, we would do projects in a lot of different countries, uh, try and create products that help local communities. And uh, in fact, that is exactly how ClearWatch started off. Right? So we, we were in Bali in Indonesia, and we kind of came across this problem and we started working on um, a solution. So, so yeah, that's kind of you know how I started off and how I ended up with what ClearWatch is today. Very cool. Can you tell us a little bit more about your uh, your Guinness World Record uh, and the, the story behind that? And and oh, how how fast was this fish? Sure. So we well we basically started this project in 2016, and then we thought we thought it's like pretty straightforward. You know, we, we we did the math. We should be able to do it. And so we started putting together this robotic fish, and the condition was that it needed to swim with its tail. So you can't have propellers or anything. Okay. So, and uh, basically, the first three years were just a disaster. Right? So we kept trying to get it to go faster and faster. And then eventually, we had to do a lot of research uh, into the into kind of the flexibility of the, the fins and, and how we transfer the power out. And uh, yeah, then so it, it took us almost five years to finally build a fish. It was about, the fish itself was about a meter long, so it wasn't a small product. Uh, it had a 200-watt capacity, and we did... Uh, a 50 meter pool in about 23 seconds so the wow so that's that's about I mean it's comparable to a Michael Phelps right so the the, the original idea was hey we built a fish fast human and then most Olympic swimmers so yeah very cool so gold medal for that and is it still the uh, the fastest fish uh, robotic fish in the world yes it is actually the same team uh, ended up breaking the record again next year with a improved version of that machine and so it's kind of an ongoing project now at the University of Hong Kong where uh, on one side they're, they're coming up with new research every year on you know how uh, this kind of motion can actually be a really efficient way to go through the water. Uh, but also on the other side, they're 
getting a return in terms of bringing back out of it. Tell us uh, about the origin story of Clearbot. Sure. So, um, yeah, the story is well, we, so the University of Hong Kong, where we were, me and my co founder at the time, were graduating out that year uh, of the university. So, the university had a little fund that uh, would cover your flight tickets to our far off destination, provided you actually did a project to help the local community and, you know, basically did something useful there. Uh, so, we really wanted to go to Bali for our, for our graduation trip. And we needed to figure out a way to afford it. And so we did the math and said, okay, if we go to Bali and, you know, find an impactful, do an engineering project there, this is impactful, potentially we could pay for our flights. So jokes apart, um, that's kind of how we ended up in, in Bali on a beach looking for a problem to solve. And um, we came across uh, a lot of the locals were going out, you know, they're going out into the water and collecting the trash out by hand. So they would go out on the surfboards or little paddle boats with nets. Um, and what we found out is they, they couldn't use motorboats because the propellers would get stuck, or the trash rather would get stuck in the propellers. And uh, and so even though the government had a incentive to try and clean this water and the local community had an incentive because the industry depends on it. And even though there were volunteers available, there was time and money being put in, they weren't really able to scale up the collection process. And so that's when we saw this gap, right? Like, so there's there's an intent, but the tools aren't available to make it happen. So we, we floated out the first clear bot in Bali. It was just a couple of aluminum bars and some net, you know, and uh, it was like really hacker. We, we used like toy helicopters as the propulsion. and uh, But it, it worked, right? It sort of worked. And I think people, we got a good response. Like people were like, hey, at least I ready to go to the water. So not bad, something. Um, and we kind of came out of that and came back to Hong Kong and we realized that the government here uses these like motorized sampans, these old boats uh, that are going up and down the harbor each day cleaning up waste. But those boats run on petrol and diesel. So they're creating pollution while trying to clean pollution, right? It's kind of a not so logical uh, solution, I guess. So we kind of looked at it and said, okay, hey, we actually have the expertise to make this electric, so it'll be emission free. Uh, we have the expertise to semi-automate, if not fully automated, which means rather than having a crew of two or three people running one boat, you can have one person running three or four boats, right? And so you can really scale it up. And uh, the third is there's a monetary incentive as well, right? So this is financially sustainable because the government's paying a huge amount of money, like millions of dollars every year in, in just one city, just take Hong Kong, right? The government's spending a lot of money doing this. So kind of all the puzzle pieces seem to seem to make sense. Right. And so in, uh, it was in September 2021, we basically, me and my co-founder started working on this whole time. And we ended up, set up the company, we created our first prototype. Um, and we got a pilot with some land reclamation companies because there's a lot of marine construction happening around Hong Kong. Uh, and that's one of those commercial use cases where they really need this service, a lot of waste in their water. So that's how we started off. And uh, basically, the last two years have been quite exciting that in June um, 2021, we launched the current robot in the way you see it. So with partnership with Razor, the gaming company. And in the last 18 months, we've scaled from one boat to now having a fleet of 10 boats, right? And we're not trying to scale up in India and sort of expand our Hong Kong as well. So that's kind of our story. Amazing. With regard to the different problems that you're solving, so you've got uh, a pollution solution, and then there's other aspects to the services that you provide. I saw that there was surveillance, uh, monitoring, there was cargo, 
Um, and then I, I think you also mentioned as well about inspection of um, marine uh, infrastructures, let's say like oil rigs, I believe was mentioned on your site. Would you be able to talk a little bit more about the problem spaces around those as well? Yeah, absolutely. So so basically what happened is as we started you know, pretty much putting our boats and cleaning up stuff, uh, we realized two things. Number one is that we aren't the only solution to cleaning up waste on water. Uh, and we aren't necessarily the most efficient. So we're really efficient at harbor shorelines, uh, you know, these are various. But for example, if you have a river with no traffic, it's it's, it's just cheaper and faster to just block it, or like put a barrier across the top. Right? So, um, so we fit into what is a portfolio of solutions that could make a difference to the trash problem. And we have a very particular space in harbor shorelines uh, or rivers where there's a lot of traffic. Uh, so as we started doing this work, we realized, hey, we have to like think outside just doing this, right? Number one. And number two is our clients started reaching out to us and saying, hey, I also have, I mean, you're already going out of the platform and cleaning out waste. Why don't you inspect it for me as well? Or, you know, uh, I'm already using you for X. Can you do something? Can you move some goods or can you do uh, oil removal and so on? And so, and what we realized is, you know, from an impact angle, uh, those were all use cases where, again, there was a petrol or diesel fart machine being used to do that work. And so our clients were really happy because they were saving money uh, and they were lowering their emission output while getting the same work done with our machine. And so slowly we started expanding. And so now we're doing pollution recovery, which is trash, oil, uh, invasive vegetation. We're doing goods deliveries, which is after 200 kilos refrigerated or non-refrigerated goods. And the, the third is inspections. So that's water quality monitoring or visual inspections based or seabed mapping basically put sensors on and send the boat out. When you are the most appropriate solution, wh why do you edge out the competitors? That's a good question. Okay, so let's look at what the competitors are. That'll, that'll give us a good idea. So so number one is a half a trash boom. So that's just blocking the surface. Uh, it's, that's actually probably one of the most efficient ways to just stop floating waste from getting out into the oceans. Um, the problem is a lot of the rivers uh, are actually traffic. They have traffic going up and down. So people use them for transportation or moving goods. And so you can't really just block the river, right? Uh, and, and that creates problem number one. And so it's, it's places like that where our machine can actually go out and pick up waste. And that's why the government's using these old boats to try and do that, right? Uh, the second kind of solution is you used a fixed bin. So there's, uh, for example, C-Bin is another company. Uh, and they have a pretty good product. It's a sitting bin and it's constantly kind of just sucking in waste, right? Uh, and that works really well in, uh, for example, a marina, where there's a lot of still water. And most of the trash, the trash is accumulating. But uh, again, they have two problems. Number one is if you have a bit of waves or even if you're in a slightly open space, Basically, it doesn't work. And if the tide is against you, the, the waste will just get pushed away somewhere else and not come anywhere near your bit. Uh, so uh, then you need someone to go and collect the waste, right? Um, and, and finally, you look at places like just open water or like harbors or now we're doing marinas or shorelines, beaches. It's really hard to just go out and collect waste into the water. Nobody else can do that apart from actually having a boat or someone pick that up. Uh, so again, what we're able to do is then do that very cheaply because our the operational cost of our machine is mostly just electricity, which is which is very very cheap compared to burning uh, petrol. Um, it's emission free, it's much cleaner, and it's a lot more scalable. So you can have a one person crew running four or five boats, you know, out of one location, and therefore cover a very large area with with very low expense and very low effort. The current solution that you're providing, you've got a fleet of 10 vehicles uh, or boats out there right now. 
what does that look like and how does it operate? What's the kind of secret sauce that's going on in the background? Uh, it's just not very complex. I mean, it's uh, basically a self-driving board, if I have to simplify it. Uh, what we do is we are able to, so you can drive these boats with a radio controller. So in fact, some of our boats, it's just an operator goes to site, literally drives it around by hand. Uh, and then we have a self-driving system on top. So you can you can sit in the office, uh, turn on the robot, it'll show up on your map. You know, the GPS location will show up on the map and you can drop, you can say, okay, this is the area I want you to clean up. And it'll kind of go zigzag on its own and clean up it. Uh, it also has object avoidance systems on board. So if there's any other boat that, let's say, comes in its way or there's an obstacle which will actually stop Kuwait for that war continue on its path. It allows it to be a bit safer. It won't just crash into something, right? Um, and it also has an onboard camera stream. So if you're an operator and you're sitting, let's say, 50 miles away from the boat, it's fine. You can you can watch the live stream and you'll always know kind of where it's at, get what's going on. And uh, if it ever disconnects or if it gets full, the boat will actually come back to a static point. And uh, so at the moment, the, the, the sort of constraint in our operations is that somebody still uh, parks the boat by hacks, somebody moors it uh, to, to talk by hand. Um, but we're actually creating out a docking station that should be ready by late March uh, for trials that will allow us to truly run these remotely. And you don't even need that much person inside anymore. If I'm an operator, sitting back in a HQ somewhere and we've set it to automatic to clean up this rubbish automatic uh, in an automatic manner. Can I take control at any point that I want to, you know, pick up some pieces that have been missed yes. or how yeah, does that work? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, on our, on our dashboard, there's literally two buttons that says manual and automatic. So you want okay. to shift back to manual, you click press manual and using your keyboard or an Xbox controller, you can just, you know, do it. So it's super awesome easy. How how have you trained the um, algorithm to be able to identify pieces of trash versus, I don't know, maybe organic uh, sea material or sea life that you don't want to be collecting uh, and you want to leave that? And how do you how do you avoid false positives? That's a great question. Um, so well, uh, let's lay this down, right? So so number one. A lot of sea creatures, most of sea creatures, we don't really need to worry about because uh, their natural reaction is to get is to run away from any kind of vibration. That's how they protect themselves in the natural environment. So that's why you never hear fish going near both. In fact, when you go fishing, you have to like be super silent. Uh, so, so most marine life is anywhere away from us. Number two is we operate in really, really, don't mind me saying, crappy water, right? Uh, so bad that usually nothing really wants to live there as well. Uh, so that also solves one part. And the third part is actually the active active component, which is our machine learning. Um, so um, we do have some creatures, for example, uh, in vegetation cleaning projects, we'll see ducks. A lot of these areas are like ducks, so it's pretty stubborn there, even if the boat's coming at them. So uh, in that case, your machine learning, our camera at the front kind of detect, oh, this is a duck at stop. You know, wait, wait for the truck to go by uh, before it starts going again. Um, and we can actually train this model for pretty much any kind of animal. So uh, one that we had to train for recently is jellyfish. That's, it was actually a bit tough because a jellyfish, a white jellyfish under the water or on the water surface looks really similar to a plastic bag on the water surfaces. 
Right. So, uh, so it has its own challenges, but generally we have not really collected to date any any uh, at least a live marine creature. We do we do have some sites where they're so dirty they have dead fish, something like. Uh, but yeah, well, uh, in general, the machine learning systems take care of take care of that. And then, with respect to the surveillance aspect of your service, or to the cargo uh, moving or delivery. Is there a machine learning element to that as well? Is there an automated element to that as well? Or is that all done manually by controllers back in a in an office somewhere? Um, it, it can again be done completely automated. So the self-driving system is the same, right? Irrespective of whether you're collecting trash or whether you're doing an inspection or whether you're moving goods. It's 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 a self-driving boat that all you do is swap in. In the in the case of collecting waste, it's a conveyor belt and then a, and a holding cage. In the case of cargo, it's just a holding holding area in the case of inspections it's an inspection unit or a sensor unit uh, but effectively the the system itself remains the same and uh, what what might vary is of course how the client or how the user might want to use it right so especially with waste collection resources are low and demand is high so you prefer using self-driving mode for for inspections you might want a lot more accuracy and so people might want to drive it manually or drive it very slowly right so it, the user requirements change, but for, you know, for us, what we're trying to do is have a single product that's really scalable, and um, and you know, eventually, that's more value to our clients as well. So, if someone's picking us up for waste cleaning, uh, and then they want, and then they realize that oh, this waste cleaning board can be used for like five other things. Uh, that incentivizes them to pick up the machine and start adopting the solution as well, right? So, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your clients. You've got um, a number of boats out there at the moment. And I'm guessing that they're being used by not all one client or one customer, but a, a, a number of different clients and customers. Can you talk to us a little bit about the kinds of clients and customers that you currently have? Sure. Um, so we, we do a lot of work with the government, uh, the various government departments. So sewage department, uh, you know, marine department, environmental protection department, and so on. And even uh, we have projects, for example, with the highways department in Hong Kong. So they're doing a, they're constructing a bridge over a river. And they need to, and then the site gets really smelly because the the river carries so much waste underneath, right? And they have to keep cleaning it up, so they're using us to do that. And um, so, in Hong Kong, we're working with a lot of government departments. We expanded to India, where again, it's a lot of government, or if not governments, a lot of contractors who work take a government tender on that, that you know, sort of subcontracting down to us. So, um, in that sense, that's the major chunk of our business. Uh, and then we also have uh, one or two boats that are with some brands, right? So these are private clients who like they want to do a CSR project, or they have a factory and the water near that's dirty, and they they want to do a bit of branding as well as a bit of cleanup for their for their community. So uh, they'll they'll sponsor a boat, and we're also doing those projects. But eventually, what we're trying to do is, you know, we'll use those as opportunities to get the local government in that area to then pick up the project as a, as a kind of free demo. So. So eventually, yeah. So even if we, even if we do have some private clients, property companies, and so marine construction uh, companies, uh, but the vast majority of it is definitely public sector. How much is a typical customer or, or government agency paying to use the service and the product? Sure. Um, so the the model is pretty simple. It's that we rent these boats out, or rather, we rent the service out. Uh, but the reason is that, and so we we initially started off trying to sell this boat, right? Uh, and we did actually sell like the first two units, but what, what we realized very quickly is two things. Number one, the, the the client may not have the expertise to maintain it. To be honest, it's, it's a relatively new product. Robotics, you know, you need you need a bit of technical skill 
which is something we're trying to reduce now over time of place with our force machines. They are more difficult to maintain. And so the client may not have the, the capability to maintain it, in which case they have a bad experience. Uh, and then the second issue is that, um, you know, from our side as well, it's it's just lower revenue, right? Because you're, you're selling that machine one time, uh, you then pay to make all the upgrades and so on. So it kind of doesn't make sense. Um, our clients might be more uh, averse to, to buying an asset as opposed to buying the service, because now with that asset, it goes on the balance sheet, the depreciation award. So um, what we realize a much better model for everybody here is that we rent the machine out. So although we take the cost on us for building the machine, uh, the advantage is number one, our revenue is much longer. Machines. It's almost like a SaaS advanced service, SaaS, right? So we're, we're able to actually get a much better return on, on building that machine. Number two is the clients usually already paying for this on a monthly basis to somebody else, right? To a, to a manual based contract with a guy with a boat and a petrol engine, right? Uh, and so to shift over to us is a very easy choice because they're also paying us monthly now, right? So it's very natural. It's just shifting my contractor as opposed to restructuring my my costs, right? So it's more, more complex. So they're so it's just simply moving the bid to me, and uh, and I'm able to give them a better service with much lower operating expense because that's really. I'm not cheaper than the competition to sell the boat, but I am much cheaper than the competition when we're renting the boat out because I'm only using electricity and very low manpower as a fuel and, and a lot of people. So uh, so it seems to be a very win-win relationship. It's this kind of rental model, right, where we offer the service uh, because we get to control the tax experience, uh, happy, we maintain the boats, we can offer upgrades. So we, we are upgrading our own fleet, so it's been for us if we give them an upgrade. And uh, their, their cost is relatively low. They don't really have to invest to try our product. They can just pay a few months to try it. So it's kind of a win-win relationship. And uh, the pricing kind of really varies uh, depending on region, length of project. So, you know, we'll have, we have projects as little as 1,000, 1,500 US dollars a month, right, for a full month of service. Uh, and then we have projects as much as 10,000 US a month for a month of service. And the reason the range is so crazy, it's almost 10x. Is, is because some projects will only be there for one or two months. In fact, some projects will be there for just one week and they want to clean up a huge area in a week, let's say, uh, versus uh, some projects will have three years contract, right? So it's very cheap. I set up the boat there and just keep it running for three years. And so we can also a much lower price. Um, and also the size of the boat or the number of boats or the, the variety of tasks that a boat must do can change. Uh, and the kind of water can change. So, so installing a machine in a river versus in open water, you know, in Hong Kong, you have typhoons. So if you want the boat to sit around in a typhoon and, you know, reinforce the boats, it costs me more to do that. And so we kind of, we kind of look at each project, we work with the client, say, what are your requirements? And then we'll come up with a, we'll take our cost, teach it over the total project period and say, okay, this is, this is what we can offer you. How do you go to the market now to acquire more clients? Are you just going to government agencies or are you reaching out to those private contractors? Like you said, uh, what, what are you doing to acquire new customers? Sure. Uh, the answer is it's a mix of both in terms of the client type, right? We're not targeting. I mean, again, eventually it's all government, but uh, we're, we're quite open to working with different levels of, we're too small right now for us to kind of really choose, to be honest. Um, and in terms of how we're reaching out to people, to be honest, we've been very lucky because uh, thanks to jokes about podcasts like this, uh, we got a lot of exposure, right? And what happens is, Usually, people reach out to us. So, for for example, right now we have a pipeline of let's say, 30, 25 orders, and I don't have machines or I don't have the capability to maybe deliver an order that size. So, so uh, for the moment, 
and we're very lucky to be in this position. But for the moment, the, the constraint is actually the product and not the sales. So demand has been incoming. People find us on Google. People like literally reach out to us. Uh, or they read about us in film and they're like, okay, I need your product. Uh, and the challenge for us has been scaling up. So we, we went from zero to one and one to 10 in, in 18 months. Now we're trying to figure out how to go from 10 to 100. And that's a whole different scaling challenge, right? So what's working for 10 watts won't work necessarily for 100 volts. And so we're having to kind of rethink our product and operation process to kind of make it scale to the next next level. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? I'm sure there's going to be other founders out there who are looking to build in the hardware space and possibly even the robotic space. What is so challenging about moving from that you know, fleet of 10 to that fleet of 100? What do you have to think about differently? That's a great question. Uh, this has been the last three months of my life, but uh, basically, basically, so, you know, when our fleet of 10 boats was a, I mean, between you and me, if something goes wrong, it's, it's, it's easy for us to fix because we have only 10 boats. And so you can have an operation team of just two people and it's okay. Like you can just go out, fix the boat, come back. And so that way the, the boats are constantly running and the, the operations works, things are fine. But when you have a hundred boats and we for example, now we're expanding to India where those boats are going to be hundred kilometers, 200 kilometers away from each other, as opposed to Hong Kong, where it's like, Get on the train. The forty minutes you can be to where the boat is, right? Um, and so, with the hundred boats, what we need is we need a machine that's a lot more reliable. We need a machine that you know survives a much larger variety of conditions. Uh, we need a machine that can be maintained by external partners rather than just by our team. So it needs to be super down, sort of idiot proof, so to speak, right? Where you can't really mess it up. It's designed in a way that it's intuitive to use. It's intuitive to maintain, um, and uh, it, there's, there's a lot of other issues. Can it fit into a standard shipping container? Does it have license requirements? Because now with 100 boats, it's not just one region, so we need to be licensable in five different regions. So we need to fit some international standards. And so I think the whole, and even in terms of operations, as I was saying, you know, today somebody is parking this boat by hand. That simple task doesn't scale. You can do it with 10. It just doesn't scale when you have to do 100. Because you can't have, you know, people running around just parking 100 boats every day. Like that doesn't make sense. You need to, have some level of automation, and so I think I think uh, it's is that there is a process, and this process kind of works today, right? There's a lot of gaps in this process, or there's a lot of failure points within this process. And today we're able to go through them because your volume is small, like ten volts. Uh, but when you scale up, you then have to make the process more efficient, uh, and that's that's across companies. I mean, hardware software. This is the challenge at scaling. Right? Things have to things to scale. They actually have to work. At 10x, they have to work smoothly and you have to remove the, all the points of failure or at least more points of failure uh, to get to the next stage. Have you found a manufacturing partner to start that manufacturing of this uh, order for, for 100, 100 boats? Uh, yes, absolutely. So I, I actually, I, you know, you just got a bit of my story. My family was into manufacturing in India. I grew up a lot around a factory. So we happened to know, coincidentally, a lot of manufacturers in India, right? And so uh, we were actually producing the boat in China and then, of course, with COVID, supply chain issues, things became quite hard. And then we started looking at India as a geography to sell as well. And so what we've done now is we've actually partnered with a number of suppliers and factories in India. And we're going to be, we've in fact already assembled our first boat entirely out of India um, and, and shipped to a client. And so going forward, we're going to be producing our machine there. And so we have now the capacity to actually, if we, if we need to get to 100 boats, uh, we, you know, we're able to deliver that, uh, at least with the current, with the current. So, yeah. 
Building hardware isn't cheap. Um, I know that you've recently raised quite a bit of money. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, that raising experience um, and what you're looking to put that money towards? Sure. Uh, in terms of the raising experience, as every founder in the world of Rory Dalio, it was terrible. It was the most horrible thing. It takes your time away from the business. You just have to argue with VCs who think, you know, they're the they the world. Uh, so it's not necessarily fun, uh, but, but you know, you need to do it. And I think, so for us, the story was, you know, as, as I said, we were going from one to 10 at the time, right? And so suddenly we had all these, these orders and then we were able to produce all these boats. So I put, put the catch was we didn't have the money to produce all these boats. So initially we started looking at this as just like working capital. Say, hey, we need working capital. The bank wasn't giving us a loan because, I mean, we had about a year of operations with one boat, right? So they were like, hey, you know, we need, we need to see some some better financials before we And the orders are nice, but they don't reflect it. Like we look at past performance. So, so it was kind of a difficult situation. And so we said, okay, uh, two things. We need to, we desperately need to raise money to fulfill our current model. Our debt is very, very hard to get right. So if we look at equity, the advantage is not only do we have cash flow for funding these 10 boats, but our payback period on those boats was, let's say, four to five months. So five months later, we'll then have that money coming back to us, which can then be invested into R&D, right? So I kind of killed two birds with one stone. And in terms of R&D, because we figured out the same thing, which is figured out that once these 10 bolts are paid for, which is the case today, then we want to figure out how to go from tech to 100. And we need the R&D fund to redesign the boat to, to get all of that right. Uh, so it was kind of a, a sort of strategic idea saying, okay, it solves the working capital problem first, which is a hardware business problem. It institutionalizes us, which makes it easier to get debt in the future, right? Because we have like institutional investors, trust to work on. And, and then finally, once, once the money is back, which is the case today, now we can reinvest it into R&D to creating something significantly better for the industry. Um, and, and hopefully let's scale that up in terms of numbers. That money was used largely for R and D and to to build these, get these new ten boats built. But then you're talking about building a hundred boats. Does that say that you're going to be going to the markets again uh, and to VCs again to look to raise more capital for that uh, that manufacturing? So for that manufacturing, uh, we are trying to avoid diluting the company. And as a founder, but the equity is your equity, right? So um, what we what we're trying to do now is because we have a very Lucky to have good investors now on 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 our cap table. Um, we're not trying to use debt to fund the new boats uh, because we can pay that back. Right? We have orders that pay reputed clients, government. None of that's an issue. So, uh, what we're trying to do now is for for the upcoming. If we're trying to build hundred boats over the next two two and a half years, uh, for that we we'll likely use debt to to buy the boat, and then as soon as the project starts paying off, then buy the next batch, then buy the next batch. Right, as opposed to trying to raise the whole month. Uh, but we should, nonetheless, if we could get anything close to a figure of hearted goals, we should be raising again uh, in two, and two, two and a half years so that we can then scale up from 10 to 100,000 or whatever that looks like. You're looking at scaling up your fleet. Are you also looking at scaling up your team? Yes, absolutely. Uh, we, I mean, we have grown from, at one point, just two of us to, to like four of us that, six of us and with the last one is we're now at 12 of us the team so we are absolutely looking to grow the team we should be we should be up to 14 or 15 people by next year 
Um, so that that is also exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think yeah, as as our operations grow, fingers crossed, we're going to get great people to be. For anybody who's watching this and and they're excited about what Clearbot is doing, what are the kinds of roles that you're looking to hire for if somebody was interested? Sure, uh, we're looking for well, first and foremost, always engineers. So tech, you know, deep tech sort of firm. Uh, if you're an engineer in mechanical engineering, electronics, uh, software, any kind of software, machine learning, or just consumers are building dashboards and APIs, we need that too, right? So uh, that, if you're a researcher in autonomous systems, uh, we're looking to hire for that. On the electronic side, it's a lot of PCB design, manufacturing, reliability, engineering. Um, and on the mechanical side, it's boat design, marine engineering, you know, building up mechanical systems, self-docking, charging systems, uh, all of that we're hiring. And, and finally, on the business side, we're hiring out in India um, for in engineering as well, but actually for growing our business debts for sales reps and business development managers. That's potentially a, a lot of headcount growth. How many people do you think might be in the business by, you know, this time next year? Oh, well, it's not going to be that much. Uh, probably 15, 15 or 16. So we're going to hire four or five. Are there any other plans on the roadmap expansion into other services, any new products that you're looking to build as well? Um, so actually what we're trying to do is increase the size and capability of our current uh, product. So for example, with waste collection uh, or, or vegetation removal, is the same machine, pollution recovery machine. Uh, it's, we're now building a version that's going to be basically 1, 1. 1.6, 1.7 times the size, right? Uh, and it, with an efficiency ratio. So our current boat has an efficiency of only about 30, 35%, which means the space on the boat available for storage of garbage is only about 35% of the, the size of it. So it's really low. So the new boat should have an efficiency ratio of 80%. So effectively, it's 80% and it's a lot bigger. So it should be a huge, you know, so four, almost two to, two to three X increase on the net size uh, collection. And so we're trying to create a much bigger machine, which would be the one that we're gonna scale from 10 to 100. That will also then be allow us to do a new kind of water for cargo and for inspections. Um, and what we're really trying to do is not necessarily expand use cases, but then double down on the existing use cases to get, to get more orders in vegetation removal, trash removal, um, in post deliveries and inspections with with the, with a better, better product. That's very interesting. So it sounds really like you're looking to build out a much more um, robust and uh, multi-use case platform as opposed to going and segmenting or, or, or going deep into one particular um, pillar of your services. Is that fair? Sort of, yeah. Because, uh, well, I mean, we were, to be totally honest, we're already kind of deep into waste collection. Like that, if, if I had like 80% of my business comes from removing either garbage or vegetation from the water. So, so we're kind of doubling down on that. We're creating a much better product okay. for that. Uh, but while we're doing that, we're creating a design that is, so the old world was designed to only do that. And really everything else was just like a, somehow fit on, on top, right? Uh, but the new boat is designed, is going to be designed rather, is completely modular, right? So even, even though business-wise, definitely most of the business is still coming from waste collection, at least uh, from a product side, if we want to, move that the product's modular enough to to then do any of the other use cases not to actually expand our, our capabilities. I want to just touch base with you on if there's any sort of call to action that 
you're looking for uh, any particular audience members to take if they're watching this? Absolutely, Nick. So I think, you know, uh, if you see um, your company uh, potentially partnering with us or being able to do a project with us, or frankly, if you see dirty water out in your community, uh, do send me an email. It's sit at clearwater.org. Uh, let us know because, uh, well, for starters, if you have a company, uh, that's great. Then we can work out, uh, if we, let's see if we can work with you guys. Uh, but if you just have dirty water in your community, we often get sponsors who are looking to clean up water somewhere. Right. And so it's an opportunity for us to, to get a port out, put it in your community. So if you, if you, yeah, ha have that interest, just reach out to me. Excellent. So that, thank you so much for taking the time out to chat to me today. I think that what you're doing with ClearBot is incredibly important. We all want to take care of our waterways, our seas, our oceans, and what you're doing, I think really, you know, contributes to, to addressing the, the preservation uh, of those spaces. Um, so thank you so much. I'm really excited to see what happens next, uh, where this, for this further investment brings you. Can't wait to see the rollout of the 100 uh, new boats for the, the big fleet that's going to be coming down the line and your global expansion as well. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. It's been an absolute pleasure.